Chapel family, how's everybody doing this morning? Well, if you're like me, you're about high on Sudafed because it is that time of year for pollen to, which you know, you may call it pollen, I call it little demons that just infiltrate my sinus cavity. Uh, and then you go, to this, you go to CVS or Walgreens and you go to buy some Sudafed and it's like you're a, a meth addict. You have to pass all these drug tests and all this stuff just to get some nasal cavity drainage going on. But uh, it is good to be in the house of the Lord. It is good to be here this Sunday. Last Sunday, I was in Huntsville, Alabama for the Becoming Churches launch, which is part of the Radiant Network, which is just beautiful to see God birth a new vision, a new dream, a new church in that community. But Pastor Brian did an incredible job preaching last week, so thank you very much. Give him a hand real quick. And I'll piggyback kind of the, the announcements. One, if you're new here, we just want to say thank you. There's lots of great churches in this community, uh, and we just want to say thank you for giving us a chance. We hope you have a great experience. But also, if you're online, hit that subscribe button on YouTube and hit that like button. It helps other people find it as well. A lot of good stuff going on. We have finalized our 2021 annual impact report. If you've got one of these, you walked in the door. I just want you to take it out real quick for just a second. I just want to give you an overview of it so you can kind of look at it yourself. It'll be hosted online hopefully later on this week, and we have lots of these at the doors and out front. But this is our way of kind of communicating one an accountability feature of our church of how we're stewarding the mission and vision God has given us here. And so we've done this every year, but last year, uh, just because of COVID, it was so much other stuff going on, we didn't really have time to get to it. But you'll see in here lots of stuff, an elders update, kind of the year in review, um, our attendance numbers, that kind of thing, our online stuff, our discipleship stuff, our missions report but also our financial report. So you'll see kind of how we steward the resources that God brings in this community. And I'll just tell you, God has been very faithful to this church for so many years in every single way. Just even, even in the discipleship category, we moved to online and we had 135 people go through discipleship classes online last year. And that's people from all over, not just the country, but all over the world. We have people in Australia and I think Panama, City Panama. And just even the financial givings, you'll see uh, that we spend a lot less than what comes in because one of our financial stewardship principles here is we don't project budget, right? So we don't project a budget next year. A lot of people will say, well, we, we had, you know, a million dollars come in this year. We think we'll have a million to come in next year, so we'll build our budget on $1.2 million. One, you can't do that in your house, so we shouldn't do that in God's house. That is a business principle that is ignorant because what happens is if you build your budget on projected budget, and you don't receive the projected budget, then you start trying to manipulate people for money. So what we do is we budget off, 10 per, we budget off 80% of the previous year's income. So if last year was a million dollars, our budget set at $800,000 because 10% goes directly out the door to outreach and missions and stuff like that. The other 10% is what we call margin. So what that helps us do is if there's ever an emergency, if there's ever an issue, if there's ever uh, a, a tornado come through, if there's ever a missions partner or opportunity, we can meet those needs in our community because we didn't strap ourselves with our budget. And so those are some principles we have. You'll see some of those things in there. But I just want to tell you, uh, it's an honor to pastor this church and a privilege to pastor this church. I want to say thank you for your faithfulness, not just in giving, but in serving and representing this church outside the walls of this church, the community at large, because God has been good to you and to us all for his glory. Amen? Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 5 as we kind of continue our series called Masterclass on the Sermon on the Mount. You say, why do you call it Masterclass? Well, because Jesus literally hits almost every single thing we can ever go through in this one sermon on the mountain. And one of the interesting things with it is that in this day and age, there's a lot of church models that try to get a communication style or preaching style towards lost people. And Jesus didn't have that mentality. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he's teaching his disciples these core principles and teachings, but he's allowing the outsiders, the crowd people, to kind of hear in. That's why many times in the Bible you hear them say, well, we don't understand and he'll say, well, it's not for you to understand. He would explain it to his disciples. See, God's not trying to reach the crowd. God's trying to reach you so you'll reach the crowds. Yeah. And the Sermon on the Mount is this, this invitation into this conversation or this sermon with Jesus and his disciples. And it says this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. It says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Everybody say hunger and thirst. Every Baptist around 1130 said Amen. Hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, not just hunger and thirst, but for righteousness, 
for they shall be satisfied. See, hunger and thirst is something that's biological, but it's also spiritual. And Jesus is trying to tap into something biological to explain something spiritual because this is a, a principle. Appetites are cravings for the things we need and the things we love. Right? So I, I want to make a confession that I have not really made publicly. And I, I appreciate if you'll just protect my reputation and not share this outside the walls of the church. See, some of you can, can do this, but I, I can't. I am a coffee snob. See, y'all can drink this sludge junk you have at... Mapco or Kangaroo or some Folgers or Maxwell House or, or something. But my palate is a little bit more cultured than y'all's Alabamian ways. You may be able to just dump as many grounds as you want to in your little drip coffee pot and start your day as you chew on your coffee as it goes down your throat. But I have a more cultured taste. So I prefer an Ethiopian grown coffee bean, preferably at about 2,100 meters above sea level, processed in an anaerobic processing, maybe a honey wash processing. I want it roasted about three days before I get it, so then in the morning I wake up, I weigh my coffee beans, I want 25 grams of coffee beans. I'm going to grind those and put 100 grams of ice in the bottom of my Chemex. I'm going to then pour 300 grams of hot water at 204 degrees over my 25 coffee grams in my pour over to create liquid Holy Ghost. (laughs) See, y'all can handle the other stuff, but I've developed an appetite for good coffee. Some of y'all may not understand coffee, may understand steak. See, I think that if you eat a steak that is cooked above medium rare, you are borderline serial killer psychotic. <laughs> and so when I first met Toya, she would literally order a steak, well done. I'm like, well done? Why don't you just ask him to give you the charcoal leftovers and eat that instead? Like, well done? What psychopath are you? And so the first time I had a, a barbecue at her house, I realized this was a cultural thing. So when we say barbecue in the South, it means some type of pork, maybe a brisket, maybe some chicken, slow-cooked over smoke. Yankees, they don't understand any of that. I go, barbecue, I'm thinking, slow-cooked pork, maybe a pork shoulder, pork butt, maybe some chicken, maybe some ribs, and they opened up. It's hard for me to say this. A gas grill. Mmm. They put hamburgers and hot dogs on a gas. One, hamburgers and hot dogs is not barbecue. They put hamburgers, hot dogs, then some steaks, which is not barbecue. And then they put some ribs, we'll give you that as barbecue, on a gas grill. Cook them all together, all of them, until well, 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 well done. And since they're cooked too well, 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 well done, they take them on a, in a pan and they smother all of it in barbecue sauce. So that's where the term barbecue comes from. Their sauce of everything because you have to drown out the taste of burnt food with sugared tomato paste in order to eat this well, well, well done food. I'm talking about barbecue sauce on the steaks. Barbecue sauce on the hot dogs. Why? That is why my sweet little wife had an appetite for well-done steak. She had developed an appetite or a palate for what she was brought up on. That's why cultural foods are such a big deal, because culturally we were brought up as certain foods that we develop an appetite or a palate for those. It took me three years to get her to eat a medium-rare-to-rare steak, and now she's tasted heaven and she can't go back. See, appetites are developed by the things we need. If you're maybe a diabetic, you may need sugar. If you're a coffee addict like me, maybe you need caffeine. Like It's things we need, but also things we love. And so Jesus is using this illustration, this analogy of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. But he's not referring just to the biological, but even though the people he's preaching to, if you think about it, 
Their people, this wasn't in Jerusalem, this was on the mountainside, a rural community, people that knew what it was like to hunger and thirst. They wandered around in the desert. They were in small towns. They didn't have a a Publix or a Walmart or a Bunyan's to the glory of God or a Zaxby's or a Culver's or Rosie's. They didn't have, they couldn't just stop and go. They had to search for food. They had to search for water. And so Jesus used this terminology of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. He used in the language of this biological, natural need and longing inside of them to promote something spiritual. See, we we don't understand what it's like to really be hungry. We don't understand what it's really like to be really, really thirsty. We were in in Haiti a couple years ago, and Pastor Dylan was with us. And the, the first day we were there on top of the mountain, we were doing a construction project, and we set up a tent over our work area because y'all may know this, but the wider you are, the more you burn in the sunlight. And so they didn't have a tent. We have a tent. We, we put this tent up, and we come back the next day. Well, due to the temperature change, there had been some dew that formed on top of this tent, and it condensed into water. And so me and Pastor Dylan are out there starting to work, and these little girls that live in this little, little bitty shack right next to where we're working, they start trying to communicate to Pastor Dylan, and he couldn't understand what they mean. They're trying to give him this pot, trying to give him this pot. And finally, I realized what it was. They wanted us to push the water off of the tent into the pot so they'd have water to drink. And so if I was to preach this in Haiti, and I'd say, for those who hunger and thirst, they'd immediately connect this desire for righteousness with this pain inside their bellies. They'd immediately connect this need for water with this parched mouth feel. For hungering and thirsting is this longing, even one theologian said, this means this desire that I cannot live without this. And so Jesus uses biological function to try to teach this fact that just as if you're walking through the desert and you're looking for an oasis of water, your mouth is parched, your skin is dry, you're dehydrated, just as you would long to search after water spiritually, if you search for righteousness with that same longing, that same desire, that same push and passion, you will be satisfied. You will be satisfied. For those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they shall be satisfied. But Jesus isn't talking about a biological hunger and thirst. He's talking about the spiritual side. And I think Irma Manis said this the best way. He said, we can spend our whole lives trying to satisfy the one insatiable part of our being, our soul craving. Our capacity for spiritual experience both proves our need for something greater than ourselves and leaves us wanting when we fill it with anything but God. Like Jesus, I think he's saying, yeah, your, your, your stomach may have some longings and some needs and wanting some, some hunger and some thirst, but so does your soul. Your soul has a craving that it longs for something more than what you actually have. It longs for something greater. It longs for desires. See, just as the original audience would be wandering through the desert looking for their next meal or looking for some water, searching for satisfaction and fulfillment, We do the same thing. We may not wander through the desert. We may not wander through the wilderness, but we wander through culture. We wander through relationships looking for satisfaction and fulfillment. They were longing to fill up their stomachs. We're longing to fill up our souls. That's what Erwin Manis said. We're longing for something to fill us. Well, how can you say that, Pastor? Because we're just as thirsty as somebody who was in 30 A.D., Wandering around the desert looking for water. Well, what do you mean? Well, thirsty can mean lots of things. Thirsty is many things. A couple years ago, there was a term called thirsty that meant you are wanting attention, affirmation, and approval. And, you know, I talked to the kids about it. It's not a cool slang anymore, so it tells you language changes about every three years. But used to, if you would say, I remember we were at a restaurant one time, and, and Toy kept getting water and water and water, and the waitress kept filling up her glass. I'm like, well, she's really thirsty. Well, if you use that in a slang word, it means like she really wants attention. She's needing the attention of guys, like she's just a thirst. Like it's a, it's a derogatory term, meaning you're looking for attention and affirmation from other people. 
And see, when you start realizing that you're thirsty, thirsty means I need affirmation, I need approval, I I need somebody to tell me I'm good enough, I need somebody to, to give their attention to me. And so thirsty is that person on social media that continually posts selfies of themselves in the best possible like. Why? They want somebody to give a video or a picture, a thumbs up, to affirm them. They need somebody to give them their attention so they can satisfy their soul craving that's deep. See, our souls have this craving for attention, affirmation, and approval. Attention. I need somebody to see me. I need somebody to tell me I'm doing good enough. I need somebody to affirm me deep in who I am. I need somebody, somebody. And so when you're thirsty, you're looking for anybody and everybody to look at you and say, you have my attention. You're good enough. You're pretty enough. You're smart enough. Yes, I saw your trophy for 15th place. Yes, you're, you're good enough. Like, it's, it's all the attention of affirmation and approval. When you look at social media, it's almost always for attention, affirmation, and approval. It hasn't changed. What's interesting, though, is in John chapter 4, the woman at the well, what, what was she doing? She comes looking for water. She's, she's thirsty, but I, I'd say she's not just thirsty biologically, she's thirsty spiritually, because Jesus says, well, well, give me a cup of water. And she says, well, why are you talking to me? I'm a Samaritan. He said, well, if you knew who you, you were talking to, you wouldn't really talk like that. He said, actually, go get your husband and let him come. She said, well, I, I'm not really married. He said, well, I know you've been married four times, five times, and the guy you're with now is not your husband, da-da-da. And she said, well, who am I talking to? He says, well, I have a water that if you drink it, you'll never be what? Thirsty again. So I don't think she was talking about biological water. I don't think Jesus was talking biological water. The reason she was thirsty is because she'd been married four or five times looking for attention, looking for somebody to say, I approve of you, I love you, you're good enough, looking for affirmation. She was thirsty the same way we're thirsty today. And Jesus says, well, if you drink the water I'll give you, you'll never be thirsty again. Because this water will satisfy you. For those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be satisfied. See, we all have this need for affirmation, approval, and attention. And if we don't find it in God, like Erwin said, we'll find it in other places. We start looking for it. It may be the reason why that we search for so many things to fill our soul. So the question would be this. How are you trying to fulfill the soul cravings deep inside of you? What water, what food are you searching for in culture or through relationships to satisfy the longings deep inside of you for attention, for approval, for somebody to tell you you're good enough, for affirmation, for somebody to tell you they like you and they love you? What are you you using to satisfy those internal cravings? Could it be that's the reason you pressure your kids so much in sports and academics? Is because you get your affirmation from other parents through the behavior and activities of your kids. Could it be that's why you're on social media seven, eight, nine hours a day because you're trying to get affirmation through likes on a screen? Could that be why you're an alcohol, a workaholic that you're so busy trying to work because you're trying to prove that you're good enough to an absent or overbearing father in your past? Could it be that's why you want to be in ministry? Because you want to earn God's approval. Could it be that's that's why you're so busy trying to chase titles and degrees and certificates? Because you want somebody to tell you you are good enough, that you're approved. See, we all have these things in life, relationships, that you go from marriage to marriage and relationship to relationship. Because you want somebody to tell you, I approve of you, I affirm you, you have my attention. The only problem with that is just like Jesus talking about the woman at the well, the water of culture does not satisfy long. Jesus says if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you'll be satisfied. But the culture that we're trying to get to feed us never really quite satisfies. Maybe for a moment you feel the attention, 
Maybe for a moment in that new relationship you feel affirmed. Maybe for a moment when you get that new degree you feel approved of. Maybe when you get that new job at first you feel affirmed and approved of. Maybe on social media when you first post that like and, or that picture and you're waiting and waiting for that first like and then all of a sudden you feel that dopamine rush, but then it wanes away. See, it's like we're well beyond the, the stage of babies, but when their kids were babies, there's a thing they used to be called pacifiers, but we call them foolers, but that is not politically correct because that's saying that your kid's not smart enough to realize the difference. So now we call them binkies, pacifiers, foolers, and binkies. But when you think about it, all of pacifier, fool, uh, fooler is, it's an imitation of the real thing. It's designed to tell a baby that it's feeding even though it's not really feeding. So the baby goes through the same emotions, the same physical, biological functions as if it's eating, only it's not satisfying. And so what happens is at some point the baby realizes that the fooler doesn't have any food in it, so it'll spit out the fooler only to cry even more and more to you give it a bottle. Sometimes, some, I ain't saying any of y'all do this, but if you get different multiple varieties of foolers, binkies, if they spit out the one, you'll give them a different one, and they think it's real for a minute. So if you get enough binkies, you can keep that baby satisfied for a good three, four hours, at least until mama comes home. In the same way, everything culture promises you that will satisfy you is a pacifier. It is a temporary solution to an eternal problem. You will suck on it, you'll suck on it, you'll suck on it, you'll have the dopamine rush, your body will go through the emotions, your body will go through the functions, but something is long, so you suck harder, you suck harder, you suck harder, only never to be satisfied, only to spit it out and try something new, and you keep on, but deep down there's this desire, this longing, this hunger, this thirst for something that won't satisfy the belly, that won't satisfy the body, but satisfies the soul. And Jesus tells us it's righteousness, which, which is really an interesting concept that it's, it's righteousness. But in Isaiah 55, it says this, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Meaning you don't have a way to pay for this. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Jesus is telling us through the prophet Isaiah well beforehand, why are you spending your life on things that don't satisfy your soul? Why are you spending all of your time and money on social media? Why are you spending all your time and money on sports and activities? Why are you spending all your time and money on vanity? It's all vanity, but there's something he says, and it's free to buy without money that will satisfy the soul. And it's righteousness. He says hunger and thirst. Hunger and thirst are marks of humanity, meaning every single person in the world has a hunger and thirst. If they go three days without water, they're thirsty. If they go a few days without eating, they're hungry. That's a mark of humanity. But hungering and thirsting for righteousness is a mark of the kingdom of heaven. Meaning only those who are part of the kingdom of heaven or God is drawing into the kingdom of heaven actually hunger and thirst for righteousness. When you think through the Sermon on the Mount, it's not just teachings. It's actually standards or marks or characteristics of those who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And so if you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, there should be a hunger in you for the approval, the affirmation, and the attention of God. Because righteousness means this approval, this attention, this affirmation of God saying, you're good enough in me. The problem with righteousness, it's such a difficult word to define. Like I have Logos Bible software, I have some commentaries, some theological dictionaries, and I looked up the word righteousness and no lie. Like, you know, remember in high school when you wrote definitions, they're like a sentence or too long. Three to four pages for a one definition of righteousness. And so I was thinking, like, God, how, I can't get up here and try to define righteousness through three or four pages. Like, how could you define it? And the kind of the language I had was righteousness is like a coin. Right, So a coin has two sides, and I think there's really only two sides 
to righteousness, and this is it. Righteousness is this coin with two sides. It's a seed, but also a fruit. So it's a seed that God plants within us of righteousness, but it produces a fruit of righteousness. It's also a relationship with God, but also a lifestyle for God. It's also a gift that God gives us, but also an expectation to use the gift that God has given us. And so righteousness is really this this two-sided coin that I feel like most of the time we only get one side of it. Maybe if you come from a Reformed background, you only get the gift side that, no, God imputes his righteousness in us through Christ. That is true. But there's also another side of the coin where Paul tells Timothy to train and practice righteousness so there's an expectation of righteousness. And so righteousness is this two-sided coin that God tells us to hunger and thirst for. Because if you hunger and thirst for this coin, you will be satisfied. Your need for affirmation will be satisfied. Your need for approval will be satisfied. Your need for attention will be satisfied if you seek after this coin. And only those who are actually citizens of heaven will actually pursue the coin. The world does not care about the attention, the affirmation, and the approval from God. The world is not asking, how can I satisfy this craving in my soul from God? They're not hungering and thirsting for righteousness. They're hungering and thirsting for satisfaction. See, they skip a step. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The world skips the righteousness part and skips right to satisfaction. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for satisfaction. Jesus said, no, no, if you seek righteousness, you'll be satisfied. And it's a gift, it's a relationship, and a lifestyle. So can I go deep for just 10 minutes? Okay, two of you. Okay, the rest of y'all go to sleep for a second. See, righteousness means being right with God. So if, if you want an easy definition, righteousness means right standing or being right with God. And so if you're righteous, if you're hungering for righteousness, you're hungering for this desire to be right with God. You don't want anything standing between you and him. You don't want any sin blocking your perspective. You don't want anything that causes any drama between you and God. There's this desire, I just want to be right with God, just like you should have a hunger and thirst to be right with your spouse. So anything that stands in between, you want to kind of get rid of that so there's nothing in between you, but there's no way to be right with God on your own. See, we're not talking about self-righteousness. We're talking about his righteousness. The difference is this. Self-righteousness means, well, let me back up. You're going to find your righteousness through works in one way or another. What does that mean, Pastor? So the whole law is showing us all the, all the things we must do to be right with God. Right? So self-righteousness is when you put your trust in your own goodness, your own works, and your own accomplishments. His righteousness is when you put your trust and your hope in His goodness, His good works, and His accomplishments. But you're going to find your righteousness in one way or the other. Self-righteousness is when you feel like you're already righteous enough that you can start judging everybody else's righteousness. His righteousness is when you realize you didn't earn your righteousness. It was a gift from God, and you don't have time to judge everybody else's righteousness because you're so busy thanking God for your righteousness, you don't really care. See, Jesus would preach the same message differently to the Pharisees because he was continually condemning them for their self-righteousness. But he's telling these people, blessed are you when you hunger and thirst for his righteousness. Why is that such a big deal? Well, Isaiah 64 says, your righteousness is filthy rags. So if you're putting your trust and hope in your goodness and your accomplishments and your good works and your abilities and your Sunday school attendance and your church attendance and and what movies you watch and don't watch and, and, and what you say and don't say, if you're putting your trust in that, you're never, ever going to be righteous. But if you place your trust in Jesus' goodness, in his accomplishments, and in his works, he gives you his righteousness, or his right standing with the Father. See, the only good way to explain it is, you know, I've never been to Hawaii, but I know it's a really, really far swim. So if you start in, say, San Francisco, and you say, we're going to swim from San Francisco to Hawaii, first of all, there are sharks in that there water. So you might want to get a boat. But if you say, we're going to swim, and there's three guys that say they're going to swim, maybe it's a competition. 
The first guy's a, a bubba. He, oh, I can do anything in high school. I was a second-string quarterback in the state championship football guy. I can do it. And he starts swimming. He swims for three miles, and guess what? He's going to get tired, he's going to cramp up, and he drowns. All right, so the next guy, maybe, maybe he swam in high school. He said, man, I can, I can beat that. And he starts swimming. He passes the floating body of Bubba, and he goes another seven miles. He swims 10 miles. Then he cramps up because he ate right before he left. He cramps up, and he begins to sink, and he drowns. But he went farther than the other guy. Well, another guy, maybe, maybe he's Michael Phelps. He swam in the Olympics. Maybe he's had a little weight since then, but he's, he's trained. He's ready. He's ready to go. He says, I, I, I'm the best swimmer in the world. I know I can make it. He begins swimming. He passes the floating body of Bubba. He floats up the floating, passes the floating body of the guy who went 10 miles, and he keeps on going 25, 35, 50, 75, 100 miles. He makes it 125 miles before his body gives out. And he sinks and drowns. See, it doesn't matter how good you think you can, you can do. It doesn't matter how far you think you can go. The distance is too far. The distance between where we are and the holiness of God is too far for any man, no matter how well trained you are, to make it. The Pharisees were well trained. They knew the law, they worked the law, they went above the law, they could outswim everybody else, but guess what? It's still too far to swim. So you can be nicer, you can be more kind, you can, you can do a lot of stuff that makes you a better neighbor, it does not make you fit for heaven. The only way to be fit for heaven is to be righteous. To have nothing, being right with God is what gets you to heaven. Not good works, not church attendance, only being right with God. And the only thing that makes you right with God is placing your trust in his good works. Placing my trust in who he is. I repent of my works, I repent of my issues, and I place my trust in him. See, it, it's, it's a gift. See, and, and to go deeper, Paul tries to explain the gift of this coin. He says, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, which is Adam, Paul's talking about Adam in the fall in the garden, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of, the gra of grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Meaning, when Adam sinned, it brought condemnation for all of us. But the free gift following many trespasses. So get this. One trespass causes a fall for all of us, but all our trespasses are brought to justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more. I circle that in your Bible. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and what the free gift of righteousness not your righteousness, but the gift of righteousness in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many were made what? Righteous. So, you mean, Jesus' obedience makes me righteous. Your obedience does not. Now the law came to increase the trespass, meaning the law came to show how unrighteous we actually are, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign, what? Through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What Paul is saying is, Adam sinned and made us all sinful. Jesus came, obeyed the law, perfected the law, fulfilled the law, and when you place your trust in him, he gives you the gift of righteousness that his obedience is now your obedience, and now you stand with nothing in between you and God. Titus, Paul says this to Titus, who's a pastor, said, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Well, how did he save us? Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. He's saying, this is a gift. Like, like 
you got to hunger and thirst for this gift of righteousness. It's not something you earn. It's not something you buy. It's given to you as a gift. And he says in, to, in, to, in the Philippian church, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The righteousness from God that depends on works? No. The righteousness from God that depends on my obedience? No. But through faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Then last one, he says this. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, said in him we might become the what? Righteousness of God. He's saying hunger and thirst for righteousness, being right with God, is not a byproduct of your works. It's a byproduct of your surrender. When you surrender your need to approve yourself, when you surrender your need to satisfy your own soul, when you surrender your need to satisfy and find approval and attention and affirmation from everything else, when you repent of all those things, you receive this gift as making Jesus your Lord and Savior, the gift he gives you. One of them, there's many, but one of them is the gift of righteousness, meaning now you are right with God. There's nothing. When, G, when God the Father sees you, he sees Jesus. When God the Father looks down, when you pray, he sees Jesus. Everything. You are hidden in Jesus. But it's also a two-sided coin. So the one side is the gift, but the other side is this expectation. That if you receive the gift, righteousness means living right for God. So it means being right with God, but also living right for God. See, if you only get one side of the coin... You begin worshiping yourself instead of Jesus. Because if I get the gift, but I don't use it, I don't honor the one who gave me the gift. But if you try to live right without receiving the gift, you're going to be a Pharisee and never obtain the grace and mercy that God has wanted you to have. See, it's a two-sided coin. And when you finally realize that when God gives you a gift, every gift he gives us, there's an expectation of return on that gift. He expects you to invest that gift in a way that multiplies for his glory and his namesake. And so living right for God is not you're trying to live out the law. It's you trying to live out the righteousness he's already placed on the inside of you. I mean, if he placed the seed of righteousness on the inside of me, there should be a fruit of righteousness on the outside of me. If he's given me a relationship with him on the inside, there should be a lifestyle of that relationship on the outside. If he's given me this gift on the inside, there should be an expectation to use the gift on the outside. It's a two-sided coin because Paul, who just gave us those other scriptures, gives us the other ones. We, or Martin Luther said this, we do not become righteous by doing righteous deeds, but we, having been made righteous, we do righteous deeds. I mean, you, don't, you don't get righteous by doing good works. You do good works because you've been made righteous. And so Paul says it this way, or John first, he says, Now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. That's a really heavy statement. What he's saying is when Jesus returns, you should have so much confidence in your lifestyle, in your heart, in your motives, that you should not have any unconfidence or any shame or guilt at Jesus' coming. Meaning you should live your life in a way that if Jesus came back today, you'd be happy, not afraid. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices, everybody say practices, practices righteousness has been born of him. Meaning this is a mark, hunger and thirsting, thirsting for righteousness is a mark of those who have actually been born again. He says practice, right? So it's a gift, but you also got to practice it. Then he says this, so flee youthful passions and pursue, what? Righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So I have to practice righteousness. I'm going to practice what God did on the inside. I'm going to practice on the outside. But I also have to pursue it, meaning it doesn't come naturally. You have to pursue and chase after righteousness. But also, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training, what? 
in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. See, what's interesting is Paul goes from the book of Romans saying this is the gift. It's free. To all of a sudden changing that when he's talking to the pastor saying, you need to train in this, you need to practice in this, you need to pursue in this. Why? Do not let the gift fall to the ground unused. Like, Toy bought Araya a cricket like two Christmases ago. Araya didn't really want the cricket. Toy wanted the cricket. But Toy gave her the gift like, hey, I got you everything you've ever dreamed. It's like she bought her a brand new car. She opens it up. It's a cricket. A cricket is a, a silk screening, sticker-making machine. I don't know what it is. It's a Hobby Lobby thing. Anyway. You know where that cricket still is? Right next to our couch 15 months later. You know what that communicates to Toya? That Araya didn't appreciate the gift. You only show, you only prove that you appreciate a gift by using it. So I think Paul is saying to these churches is that, hey, you look very ungrateful. That Jesus gave you his own righteousness. He's imputed in you his standing with the Father, his approval with the Father, his attention with the Father, his affirmation with the Father. He's given it to you, but you're not using it. So what do you think that communicates to God that if he makes you righteous but you don't actually live righteously, what do you think that proves to God or makes him think through the gift that he's given you? Because if you don't use it, it means maybe, just maybe, you haven't been made righteous. And here's the way you can determine that. I'm going to close my first closing. I've got about three more. <laughs> here's how you know if you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness. When was the last time you added convictions to your life instead of just scratching convictions out? What does that mean? It means this. We live in a day and age where the church, the American church, I can't speak for all the churches, where there's so much of a desire and hunger and thirst for satisfaction at the expense of righteousness that people are trying to find out what they can scratch off the list of convictions rather than what they can add to the list of convictions. I'm not talking about being legalistic. I'm talking about the closer you get to Jesus the less things you want in your way. So what that means is there's things that maybe when I first got saved didn't really convict me that much. But now they convict me a lot. And why is that? Because there's nothing more than I want than the attention of God in my life. There's nothing I want more than the affirmation and approval of God in my life. And I receive that by hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And as I hunger for it, as I thirst for it, God's plan of feeling in the Bible is for hunger and thirst. He never leaves anybody hungry. And so the closer I get to God, if he's the light, the closer I get to him, the more things I see that don't belong in his presence. You know, in our Bible reading plan, I've been, obviously we've been reading through Exodus. And, and one of the things that is so clear to me it's clear to me, is this. Not everybody gets to experience the intimacy with God the Father as everybody else. What that means is this. When you walk through the, the, the story of Exodus, Moses, Aaron, and the Levites all got special access to God. Now, the Hebrews, they got to stay on the outside. They got to see the glory of God fall. They got to see the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke. They got to see, they got to see some of the things happen, but they didn't get to walk into the holy place. But there was a price to be paid to get into the holy place. And the price was Aaron and the Levites. There's a whole process of what? Removing things out of their life and off of them to prepare them to enter the holy place. And when they walked into the holy place, they got to spend alone time with God the Father and the Creator. I think what Jesus is saying is, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, are those who are willing and more than willing to let go of things of the world to walk into the things of the Spirit. Yeah. 
And when you give up those things, if you hunger and thirst for being right enough and to be standing with God and that attention, affirmation, approval, you can walk in with boldness to the throne room. See, we can, we can sugarcoat this a lot of ways. The only people that get satisfied in the soul level in the kingdom of heaven are those who actually hunger and thirst for it. And so the question would be this. How hungry and how thirsty are you for the attention, the affirmation, and the approval of Almighty God? How hungry are you? Because only those who are hungry get satisfied. And maybe if you're not hungry, it's because you're full of yourself or you're full of the world, you're full of sin, you're full of something. Because the only time you're not hungry is when you're full of something else. So this is the question. If Jesus is preaching this sermon today, he was standing here, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. What would your response be? How hungry are you to be satisfied by God? How hungry are you to, instead of looking for likes on the screen, you're looking for God to speak affirmations over you? How hungry are you for God to say, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased? How hungry are you? Because your level of feeling is contingent upon your level of hunger. Well, pastor, how do, how do I stir my hunger? I, I believe just real quick, three ways. One, you read the word actively instead of passively to obey it. Meaning, we theologically talk ourselves out of obeying God's word. But the greatest sermon I ever heard was read the Bible and do it. When you read the Bible and do it, it'll stir a hunger in you because obedience stirs hunger and hunger. Secondly, prioritize environments that stir your hunger, not your satisfaction. Meaning like, worship service, prayer nights, whatever it may be, environments that stir you to hunger for righteousness and to hunger for the things of God. We spend most of our time in environments that stir our satisfaction, whether that's interest in ball games and sports and money in the mall. We spend most of our time trying to hunger and thirst for satisfaction. But if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you'll receive the satisfaction. And thirdly, prioritize relationships that stir your hunger for righteousness. It's not a not meaning isolate yourself from everybody in the world, but prioritize relationships that you're not seeking satisfaction from, but you're seeking a stirring in your soul from. Meaning some relationships you have, you're only in that relationship, that friendship, that, that boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever it may be, you're only in that relationship because you want them to satisfy your soul. I'm saying quit pursuing relationships like that and pursue relationships that are people that stir you to hunger for God's word. Stir you to thirst for his presence and to pursue righteousness. Those are the relationships that bring you to the point of satisfaction of righteousness. If you would, I just want you to stand up all the room. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes as you stand just for a second. I just have a couple questions kind of thinking out loud. One is this. I'm going, to, I'm, going to ask, I'm going to ask you to come forward. I'm going to ask you to raise your hands. If I'm, when I was talking about righteousness, maybe self-righteousness, and, and trying to depend on your good works and your obedience and your accomplishments, but at the same time maybe pointing out the unrighteousness in everybody else. Maybe you're one of those people that you're so quick to judge the unrighteousness of the world, the unrighteousness of other people, because you don't spend enough time realizing you need to be hungry and thirsting for your own righteousness in Christ. Maybe it's you. Maybe the Holy Spirit was just speaking to you and said, you know what? That's you. you you're self-righteous. This is the chance for you, between yourself and God, to repent and say, God, I repent of depending on my own stuff. And I just need you. If that's you, I just want you to slip your hand up real quick. Thank you. Anybody else? Thank you. Thank you. Put your hands down. Second question is this. Maybe if one of the marks of the kingdom of heaven is hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Maybe you came in here today and you said, you know what, I haven't really been hungry to be right with God. I haven't really been hungry to live right for God. But I'm wanting God to provoke a hunger inside of me. 
I want this to be a day, a new, a new day for me to hunger and thirst for his righteousness so he can satisfy me in my soul. I have longings inside of me that need to be satisfied. I need his attention. I need his approval. I need his affirmation. That's you. That's why you slip your hand up right where you are. Melbourne, thank you. Thank you. You put them down. The third question is this. If God is going to fill you to the level of your hunger, how full are you going to leave from the table of the Lord? A.W. Tozer says we have as much of God as we want. So if that's true, and God fills us to our level of hunger, how much, how full are you going to be? Because I'm praying for a hunger that can only be satisfied in Him. I'm praying for a thirst that can only be quenched in Him. I, want, I don't want more from God. I just want more of God. If He said, you know what? I, I want God to stir my hunger this morning. I just want Him to stir my hunger for Him, for His righteousness, for His kingdom, for the things of his spirit. I was, I was, I'm hungry. I want to be more hungry than I've ever been before. I don't want to be satisfied off yesterday's meal. I want today's manna in my life. That's you. I'm going to ask you to do something different. That you say, I want God to stir my hunger. That's you. I'm not going to have the band come out. I just want you to come down forward just for a second. I want to pray a specific prayer over you. You said, I'm, I need to hunger more. I want to hunger for righteousness. thank you that in everything the kingdom is satisfied through hunger. And Father, I thank you for the hunger and thirst of your people, your sons and your daughters, Father. Not hunger and thirst for the approval of the world or affirmation from humans, Father, but only from that of an unconditional loving Father. So Father, right now I just pray that you stir the hunger for more of you. I pray that you stir a hunger and thirst in their spirit, man, for more of you, Father. A hunger and thirst for revival and for your presence and for prayer and for your love and for your grace. Father, I pray that in all of us, you just begin to stir more than you've ever stirred before. Father, those that experience revival, Father, I pray for renewal inside of them, for a hunger and thirst, not for an experience, but for your presence and for more of you. Father, I pray as a hunger and thirst, Father, you satisfy every soul craving they have. Everything they need, Father, from this earth, Father, approval and attention and affirmation, Father, I pray you speak in their inner person, Father. I thank you so much that no one in your kingdom goes hungry, Father. Even think of the multiplication of the loaves and fishes. Father, the hunger was there, but the bread was not. But you multiplied and you made enough to satisfy every hungry soul. It's Father, right now, I just pray for hunger to rise up and for satisfaction to increase. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name.